Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-okay. I saw an incredible musical, and I want to urge you, if you are in New York City from today until the end of December 2021, run to the Atlantic Theatre Company's production of Kimberly Akimbo. It stars Victoria Clark and Bonnie Milligan and a host of other incredible talents, actors, and musicians. It is directed by Jessica Stone. It is written by the great David Lindsay Abair and Janine Tesori. It would be impossible for me to explain to you what makes this so special without giving away some key plot points, and I don't want to ruin this magical musical for you. But just trust me when I tell you that Victoria Clark's performance, and she's the centerpiece of this unbelievably creative, inspiring, and magical night of theater. She plays a 16-year-old girl. That's all you need to know. Her journey, what she is trying to negotiate with a rare disease that makes her look much older than she is. Her family dynamics, her school dynamics, it's about love, it's about faith, It's about understanding. It's about redemption. It's about living your best life and a full life and living every day like it might be your last. It is incredible. And to be back in a theater seeing this kind of work and the Atlantic Theater Company is just so brilliant at finding these gems and sharing them with us. So run to the Atlantic Theatre Company to get tickets. You can go to atlantictheater.org. Enjoy it. I loved it. Little known fact about my guest today, she has sung for the Pope, and she is also one of the most successful, prolific pop songwriters of the last decade. She has co-written nine songs with Katy Perry, five of which have gone number one. That is just the beginning of what this woman has done. Welcome the incredible Bonnie McKee to the podcast. A-OK. 
everybody. My guest today is the Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter and actress Bonnie McKee. Bonnie is one of the most successful songwriters of the past decade, writing songs for artists like Katy Perry, Britney Spears, Cher, Christina Aguilera, Adam Lambert, and more. Songs you know every word to, like Roar, Dynamite, California Girl, and Part of Me. She also performs her own incredible music in concert. Her music video gets gajillions of views and streams. She recently wrote, produced, directed, composed music for, and stars in a short film that has already won many, many awards for Best Direction, Best Score, Best Acting, Best All the Things. And it is called April Kills the Vibe, which depicts a story focused on addiction and sexual assault and accountability. I got to see this film. It's extraordinary. I'm so thrilled to welcome storyteller Bonnie McKee to the podcast. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Um, It is such an honor to talk to someone who literally, you know, you say so often, like, that's the soundtrack to my life. But there are so many events in my life, in my daughter's life, in family celebrations where your songs have been playing and everyone is singing along and bonding to. Um, (laughs) I can't even imagine what it is to have sort of have the power of the pen and the imagination come together in the extraordinary way that that your creativity has sort of impacted billions of people around the world. And here you are uh, <laughs> on a Tuesday. Thank so, you. You're welcome. What a great um, way to start the day. <laughs> well, exactly. And it's earlier for you in LA. So it really is the start of the day. Um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about you and where you grew up and and when you kind of understood that you had a talent that was singular and not ordinary in any way. Oh, well, um, I was born in Northern California in a little town called Vacaville. Um, my dad was in the military, so we, we moved a few times and ended up in Seattle. So um, when I was little, I really, I mean, I was really raised by a television. I watched a lot of MTV. I loved music videos. And honestly, I I haven't heard other people say this, but I feel like watching music videos is what inspired me to want to get into music. I wanted to play a character. I I love the costumes. I love the dancing. Um, And I remember watching a Tina Turner special on HBO when I was a child and just jumping out of my seat and like crying. I was so excited. Um, And I knew that I wanted to make other people feel that way. Um, And I started out in choirs. I was classically trained. So I was in the Seattle Girls Choir and uh, we toured Europe and sang for the Pope and uh, whole thing. So uh, that was a big part of my um, musical training. But I loved pop music. So I felt like I really wasn't scratching that itch being in the choir. Um, so I took some private voice lessons and I started writing songs. I mean, really, I was secretly writing songs when I was very small. And I would I would write my own lyrics to popular songs that I liked and just make the lyrics about whatever little girls sing about, you know, fairies and unicorns and whatever. <laughs> Um, and I also wrote poetry and I would be in, you know, local poetry contests and stuff like that. Um, so I made a demo when I was 12 or 13 of cover songs of Jewel and Fiona Apple and Bette Midler and all that. And, um, I gave it to a friend of my mom's, Jonathan Poneman, who was the only person that I was connected to in the music industry in Seattle because they're both into transcendental meditation. And he said, that's great, kid. You can sing, but can you write? 
And so that was my challenge to kind of go home and, and see if I could write. So that was where it all began was, was really with that conversation. That's so incredible. And the idea that both your mom and this person meditated or were in the meditation world, mm-hmm. um, is that something that was a practice in your home or was it like a kooky thing that your mom did? <laughs> uh, it was very much a part of my upbringing. Um, we were not religious, but it was a spiritual house. And um, my mother is still very much involved in the transcendental meditation movement. Um, so she taught me to meditate when I was a little kid. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, when something's sort of forced upon you, you kind of rebel against it. So um, I didn't practice it for a long time. I still kind of come back to it now and again. It's a, it's a great practice. I just, you know, it's, <laughs> I spent my whole childhood doing it. So I found right. my, my other spiritual ways of um, connecting to my higher power. Right. That's so incredible. And then you had sort of that incredible thing happen, which is at a really young age, this demo. And I just want to go back. When you say you made a demo, is that like, how did you do that in a professional setting or did you do it at home, like on a tape recorder? Like what did that look like? My parents were kind enough to rent me a studio, a local studio for like two hours or something. And um, I had an accompanist that helped me in my vocal lessons. And so uh, he went in with me and we recorded these covers. But then when it came to the original songs, when I went home and started writing original songs, uh, it was for a school project in ninth grade um, where, you know, some kids would, it was like the end of the year project where some kids would go plant trees and some kids went to Germany and some kids, you know, and so mine was uh, recording. And so the school- Wait, I love that. Some <laughs> kids planted trees, you recorded, and some people went to Germany. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was it was like whatever your interests are, they would help you out, you know. It was, I it was love kind that. Of, Town artsy school, which by yeah. the way, I had been, it was the end of the year, but I had already been kicked out of the school. Do you want to I, talk about, do you want to digress for a minute and talk yeah, about that? Yeah, I got kicked out of high school in the ninth grade. Um, I It was a private school that my brother had flourished at. It was like kind of an artsy school, um, but I was a teenage drug addict nightmare and so all the parents kind of banded together and decided that I was a bad influence. And they kicked me out before I could even finish my freshman year. Um, and I was devastated. You know, I mean, like, sure, I wanted to be a rebel and blah, blah, blah. But like, I felt so rejected, especially by my, you know, the adults around me that really I felt gave up on me. But since my parents had already arranged for me to do this recording thing, they still let me do the recording. So um, I recorded it with a band that was like kind of a uh, psychedelic rock band. And I was like, you guys can play instruments. Can you, I wrote this song, can you help me? And um, so we recorded them. And then I, I gave the demo to everyone I knew. And it turned out that someone that I knew babysat for someone that knew someone in Los Angeles. And they introduced me to my first manager. <laughs> it was, it's very old school. I don't, I mean, this is the days before social media and stuff. Right. So it was kind of like, you know, I really was uh, plucked out of obscurity. <laughs> so when that happens, when this manager in LA, this, this fairy godfather, if you're a young person wanting to do music says, yes, I see you. I hear you. I think you're special. Did you drop out of high school or did you just move to another school, by the way, when all of this went down? 
Well, I was kicked out of the first high school and I went to an alternative school called Nova High School in Seattle. And okay. uh, it was kind of like a daycare for drug addict teenagers. <laughs> um, like, but it was cool. It was like we had a lot of independence and uh, I would get like PE credit for logging my hours dancing at raves. <laughs> stuff like that. And I would get uh, I would get creative writing credit for logging the hours I spent writing songs and stuff. So it was really focused on, you know, the kind of interests that whatever the students had. Um, but it wasn't going anywhere. I was I got so behind in my credits in high school because of being kicked out that I was like, I'm never going to make this up. I'm not going to summer school I'm over it. So I got my GED and I ended up getting a record deal in Los Angeles and moved down here by myself. When you were like 16 or 17 years old? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So your parents, did they um, support this or did you sort of run away to do this? Uh, I mean, they were always supportive. You know, my mom and dad both always believed in me, which I'm so grateful for. Um, My dad really wanted me to go to college, but I was just like, I mean, I know I want to do music. I already have so much training from being in this like world-class choir. Like what more can I really learn in that? in that world. Uh, and so he, they, they supported me. Um, they were in the middle of a divorce at the time. So it was kind of like a great time for me to sort of disappear. And, um, yeah, I mean, they, they didn't want me to go, but they couldn't stop me. They knew they couldn't stop me. So I was emancipated and, uh, moved to LA. And did you know anyone other than this manager who you didn't really know? It was just someone saying, no, to try to help you. No, it was this this manager named Colin Filco and his his family took me in and they there was an open apartment in the building that they lived in. And so I got my own apartment and um, yeah, I had like, you know, the only people I knew were he had kids my age, which was nice. Uh, but I had like a lawyer and an agent and a manager, but I didn't really have any peers. So I was it was pretty lonely. And like all of my, all the people that were my age were still in high school and like living a normal life. So I was just kind of like sitting in my apartment doing whatever, getting into trouble mostly. And were you doing, were you being set up with people who basically do what you ended up doing, which is meeting with artists who need to create an album of songs and help them write? Or are you sort of meant to write an entire album by yourself? What is the premise of what you know, you're supposed to be doing in your apartment at the time. It's so funny. Like they they got me a they gave me a little rig to record, but no, I was never paired up with professional songwriters and I I didn't even know that was a thing. Right. And then once I got into doing that, I was like, "What the hell? Like where was that for me? I really could have used that." But I think that they were like Oh, she's so talented. She doesn't she doesn't need help. But like yeah. I did. Like when yeah. I listened back to that first album, I'm like, oh my God, like what would I have done to have some help with that? But I was working with Rob Cavallo, who produced my first album. And uh he has done Green Day and Michelle Branch and all kinds of people. So um he was very instrumental in helping me kind of learn the ropes of being in the studio and um song structure and stuff. But I for I I wrote the whole album, the first one myself. So this kind of musical marriage that turned into um, something really creatively beautiful for both of you is the songs that you and Katy Perry wrote together. Mm-hmm. Um, are you meeting her many years later? Does this happen sort of quickly in your in your new life in LA, kind of becoming friends with each other? 
No, I spent, you know, about five years, I guess, just sort of in the gutters of Hollywood trying to figure out how it all worked um, and very lonely. And then I actually, I met Katy Perry in a thrift store <laughs> in Los Angeles before she was famous. And we were both selling our clothes because we were just like broke artists. And um, she came up to me because I'd put out my album on Warner Brothers. It didn't do very well. But like in L.A., I was kind of a darling, but the rest of the world didn't know who I was. And were you and playing she- gigs and sort of getting the music out there in clubs? Yeah, the time? yeah. yeah. I, you know, I had my song was in a few movies and TV shows and stuff. And I, I did a tour with Ryan Cabrera. And, um, you know, I did a radio tour and the whole thing. So I got a little taste of it, but um, I really just didn't know how any of it worked. And so when Katie approached me in Wasteland, the <laughs> clothing store on Melrose, she was like, oh, you're Bonnie McKee. I love, love your work. And I was like, oh, my God, like someone recognized me. And she's like, I'm a songwriter, too. I'm, a, I'm an artist. And I was like, wow, like someone my age that does the same thing, you know. And so we were fast friends. And um, and then she ended up blowing up and we were just friends just partying together and stuff and then uh she put out her first album and then uh she asked me to come in and write on the second one for Teenage Dream. And did you already have, you know, you had been already writing since you're really little. Mm-hmm. Um are you someone who writes in notebooks? I mean, you grew up there were computers in your life, but are you <laughs> yeah. someone like pen on paper or sort of how, what? Where were all your songs up until that point? Yeah, no, they're all in notebooks, and I have <laughs> I have them all still. Um, and I've actually I just recently joined TikTok, and I've been doing kind of showing the notebooks and the alternative lyrics and stuff of what the songs might have been. Um, I still to this day write on paper. It's just the best way for me to sort through my issues. There's something about you know going from my brain to my hand to a pen to the paper that is where I connect a little more than I do when I'm typing something on a computer. And when you're in your day, now that we have cell phones with voice memo and ways to kind of quickly like record an idea in real time, Mm -hmm. are you constantly sort of doing that? Like, like putting rhymes together or things you see or little notes so that later on you can incorporate them? Yeah. I, yes. I love my little voice recorder. (laughs) My iPhone is, I mean, it's a tool that everybody uses in songwriting sessions and, um, and, you know, in the middle of the night I can wake up and record something. Um, and I also have a list of song titles in my phone and like little notes of lyric ideas and stuff. So, you know, if I don't have my notebook on me all the time, which I don't, then I can just write it in my phone. Is there sort of, if you were doing like the TED talk on the Bonnie McKee (laughs) school of writing, is there generally a structure to how you do it that's pretty consistent? Yeah, there's a few different approaches, um, but I have a whole long list of song titles that um, usually in pop music, when I go in the room, I'm working with a producer and they will either start a track or have a track already done and I'll kind of listen to it and then I'll go through my titles and sort of see, does this track sound happy, sad, mysterious, sexy, party time, you know, and then I can sort of go through my titles and match a title that sounds like sonically what that track sounds like. Um, But I also like the more that I've written, the more I've started with melody. Um, I used to always start with lyrics and, you know, my my process has kind of changed over the years uh, because now I, I start with the melody and I do what's best for the melody. And then I know that I have all of this whole backlog of lyrics that I can sort of plug in. So do you play piano? 
I do. Yes. Um, okay. So you can play your, you can, you can figure out the melody yourself. You're not always having other people create the melody for you. It, it comes oh, no, from I, your I, head. Yeah. 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 I, I love writing melodies and um, it took me a long time and I was fortunate enough to study with Max Martin, the great Max Martin and really learn about uh, melody structure and uh, symmetry and everything else that is so important in pop music. Um, and I love writing melodies and I have them in my head all the time. Um, but yeah, I like to play off of when it comes to pop music, it's really like, I find that when I sit down at the piano now, I always end up writing a ballad. So I really prefer to write to a track and then come up with the melodies over the track, which is what's in the pop world called top lining. A top line or a top liner is a person who writes the melody and the lyric. And then the producer is a person that makes the track. So do you, I mean, of course you remember, what was the first time you heard something you wrote on the radio? It was, I mean, it was your own stuff at the beginning. You talked mm -hmm. about going on a radio tour. So tell me what that, before we get into sort of, you know, the global sensation that is writing a song for huge pop singers in the world, mm -hmm. talk to me about hearing your own music for the first time on the radio. Yeah. I, I mean, I was just a kid and I was so, I really thought that like I had made it and that my whole life was going to be uphill from there. Like I didn't understand that just getting a song on the radio is, is one of so many steps to staying relevant and having it work. You know, the song was not a hit. It was like, it had a cult following and it did okay. But I've, I was always uncomfortable with opening with a ballad because I wanted to be Madonna. I wanted to be Britney Spears. I wanted to be a pop star. But it just so happened that the songs that I wrote naturally were more singer-songwriter leaning. Um, so I had kind of a disjointed relationship with like who I, my identity was as an artist and what actually came out of me as a writer, which is why writing with producers that do pop more tempo stuff is good for me because it brings out that side of me. Uh-huh. Were you, I mean, you talk about Britney and, and Madonna, who of course are such influential people for, for those of us who love that kind of music. Mm -hmm. Were there like, like I also love Joni Mitchell and Carole King. There were also those kinds of singers because I had older sisters. So their mm -hmm. music would kind of trickle down to me or mm -hmm. for you, it might've been your mom. So were there also songwriters like that, that were oh, impactful? Yeah. yeah. Carole King was a huge influence for me. I remember listening to Carole King when I was, you know, 12 years old, when I was really thinking about what it meant to write songs. And like, I just always thought that old music was like, wasn't really pop. Like I, but then when I listened to Tapestry, like all the way through, I was like, oh my God, these are just bops. Like it's, a, and I, I started understanding the, the patterns and the, how important a chorus is and repeating lyrics. And, you know, that was kind of my like ABCs of learning about how to write a song. Now I'm a hundred years old, so I want to ask you something. <laughs> what I think of as a chorus in terms mm -hmm. of music Tell me the difference between chorus and the hook. Uh, people just call them different things. But it's, it's the, the same, same thing. thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And I thought, but I was like, wait a minute, maybe I'm not understanding. And but sometimes sometimes there's like a, a post-chorus that people will call a hook, which is something that like, you know, like, uh, under my umbrella, Ella, Ella, a, 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 like that would be considered like a hook. And then the first part is like, when the sun shines, we'll shine together. That would be more of the chorus, you know? Okay. Um, All right. So it just kind of depends on, on the song and the genre. 
Okay, first of all, I was trying to figure out when I was preparing for today, how am I going to get Bonnie to sing on the podcast? And so now (laughs) we can keep talking or I can just die and go to heaven right now. I want to kind of um, talk a little bit. uh, There's there's no way we are finishing this conversation without spending a lot of time on your short film because – it isn't a short film in terms of the emotional journey that you go on as a viewer. So please know that I'm not letting you go until we really get to talk about <laughs> this incredible piece of film that you made. But I want to know, after writing so much for yourself, um, what is it like to kind of share, in a way, your your diary entries and let other people kind of put them out on stage, right? Like it's your baby, it's your mm-hmm. work, it's your experience and kind of knowing like, okay, I have to share this with this other person and then it's going to seem like it's their song, right? Even mm. because most of the world doesn't really understand the process. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Was this beginning sort of, I'm going to do this because I need to make money? Was it painful to sort of do it at the start before you knew how much fun and success there would be as well? Absolutely. Yeah. I really was just singing for my supper and I was like singing demos and stuff. And then when I started writing for other people, I was very protective and I, you know, would keep certain songs for myself and I wouldn't, I didn't want to give up my best ideas and whatever. Uh, But then when I started writing with people like Katy Perry, um, who is a great artist in her, in her own right, she's an amazing songwriter and really doesn't need my help. But um writing with an artist is a different experience than writing a song for myself and then having it snatched from my hands, you know? Um, So when I go into write with an artist, I'm helping them fulfill their vision. It's a collaboration. It's not like I write a song and then they take it. Although some artists are that way and there's no, there's no hierarchy. You know what I mean? Britney Spears doesn't always write. Sometimes she does, but she brings the song to life. I mean, Michael Jackson didn't write thriller, you know, Madonna didn't write like a prayer who cares? They're amazing artists and they bring it to life. But uh, with a lot of the artists that I've worked with, they are songwriters. And so I co-write with them and I'm just there to help them fulfill their own vision, you know? So it got easier. I mean, in the beginning I would get, yeah, I was jealous and I was just like, oh God, I wish I could keep this for myself. But I wasn't there for me. I was there doing a job that was helping me stay alive (laughs) and also making me relevant, you know? And so I always saw songwriting as like, a stepping stone to get back to being an artist. So when you guys go into a writing session, I mean, Katie is unique because you were actually friends, but often I'm sure when you're, I mean, at this point you are friends. If if we watch your video of your your song and everyone that you've ever yeah. wrote for, written for has come onto your video to support you, which is such mm-hmm. an incredible thing and so fun, including Kiss. So random. <laughs> yeah. um, like, okay, okay. Um, Tell me what the process is. That your dog in the background? Yes, I'm sorry. I can shut her up if you want. Uh, hold on, let me put her in the bedroom. One sorry second. about that. Don't be. I'm sorry. I have a dog too, and she may come in and disturb us at at any moment. <laughs> um, can you just break down a little bit what the process is when you are? Um, paired with an Adam Lambert or a Christina Aguilera or any of the artists that you have collaborated with, um, does it work differently each time or is there de- general, generally a structure to how this works? I mean, I, it depends on the person, but for the most part, it's it's kind of like a therapy session, you know, where I go in with somebody, I say, what's going on? What keeps you up at night? 
uh, what's your relationship status? How's your, are you speaking to your parents? You know, um, it's just kind of getting to the, the heart of what they really want to say. Um, and then we kind of, I mean, I do a lot of talking with them and then I'll sort of take notes or they'll bring in ideas. They'll have song titles or whatever. And we kind of pick a vibe and, and weave it into gold. <laughs> many times, many Grammys, many times. <laughs> so, you know, something that you touched on earlier and I, and I sort of noted it so we could circle back to it now is you talked about being a, a kid who was into drugs and that mm-hmm. was part of the school changes and clearly a f- part of the fabric of your life from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and that brings us to April Kills the Vibe. It's this movie that you just made because so much of the heart of this film is addiction mm-hmm. and the power addiction can have over us and sort of grappling with it. And it has a, it, what's extraordinary about the film to the people who are lucky enough to get to see it is that um, Bonnie plays more than one role in it and it's very exciting. I had no idea in oh, watching thank you. <laughs> it. It was, it was really incredible, the differentiation between these characters. So can you talk to me a little bit about your, your journey with drugs and, and whatever you want to share about it? Because your story is really inspiring and incredible, and I know the work continues every day. Um, but anything you'd care to share about it would be incredibly useful for my listeners, I know. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I started drinking and smoking weed and stuff when I was 12. <clears throat> um, you know, I think my parents were like about to get a divorce pretty much. And so it was, it was kind of tense at home and I was feeling a lot of scrutiny at school and, uh, you know, bullying and whatever. And so I wanted to escape and there was also some like wanting to be cool stuff in there, you know? And then I very quickly discovered the rave scene. <laughs> And this is before raves were like, you know, David Guetta wasn't a thing. And it was like the late 90s where it was like still in underground warehouses and uh, not everybody even knew what a rave was, you know. Um, So I got into that and there's just a really strong drug culture attached to that. I was doing a lot of ecstasy and acid and both at the same time. Candy flipping is what we call that. Um, And then I ended up in meth and, um, you know, it was... It was dark and it was weird. And I always had this North Star, though, that I knew that I was talented. I knew that I wanted to be a singer and I knew that I had to stop and that it wasn't going to happen if I continued on the path I was on. So when I got my record deal and moved to Los Angeles, I didn't know where to get meth. So I switched to Coke. (laughs) And I thought that that was like a big you know, step forward for me where I was like, oh, because it was just like after doing all of these mind bending drugs that take you to the edges of the universe or whatever, doing a bump of cocaine was like having a cup of coffee. So I really thought that I was like getting better. Um, and then by this point I was, I was able to drink legally and that was just the whole scene of Hollywood was just drinking and Coke and drinking and Coke. And it was just very normalized, you know? Um, so I struggled with, um, you know, alcoholism and addiction and everything well into my twenties. And, um, and then this short film is actually about, one of many rock bottoms that I hit where I took some pills, drank too much, had a night out on New Year's Eve and I blacked out. And then when I came to, I, there was a stranger having sex with me in a car 
And I didn't know how I got there. I didn't know what happened. I woke up the next morning and was like, didn't know how I got home. Um, And so I called my friend to see what the hell had happened. And she, I was met with slut shaming and um, judgment and, you know, telling me that it was my own fault and that I shouldn't have gotten so fucked up. And I'm always getting high and drunk and whatever. Uh, So like it was bound to happen. And, you know, victim blaming is easy to do. And uh, I, you know, and part of me was just, I mean, it's never, it's nobody's fault, but the person that committed this crime. But would I have gotten into a car with a stranger if I had been sober? No. So I did have to take some responsibility for, you know, getting myself to a place where I was helpless and unable to protect myself, you know. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, people are responsible for the bad things that happen to them, but I had to take a look at myself and be like, you know, what, what am I doing? I'm not taking care of myself, you know? Um, so yeah, so that's what this short film is about. And that's kind of some of my journey. And is that sort of the event that, that entered you into a world of sobriety or desire to be sober or in a way? You know, there were so many rock bottoms over the years. There were so many tragic things that happened. And uh, that was not the first time that I was assaulted. And, you know, I, I like have a lot of shame of admitting that, but I know that I'm not the only person that's had that experience more than once. Um, and so that was the first time that I went to, I, I really sought help was the next morning after that. Um, but it didn't, that wasn't what got me sober. I was like, at first I was like, oh, I'm just going to quit doing drugs. Like the drugs are the problem. The alcohol is not the problem. So I quit doing the drugs and then I tried just like drinking for a while. And it was like, oh, only on the weekends, only beer, only wine, only on special occasions. And I realized that I could not, I didn't know how to practice controlled drinking. I didn't know how to drink like a lady. So eventually after a couple more years, I was like, okay, this is enough is enough. And like, it's, it's, I'm spending so much energy trying to control my drinking. And like, if I was just like, no, I just don't do that anymore. I like, there'd be so much more space in my heart and brain. And so as soon as I finally got sober, like it really changed my life. It was really the best decision I ever made. And I, I don't know where I'd be if I had continued doing what I was doing. So how did you decide to do this movie now? Because you're, I mean, on top of all these other talents, you're an incredible actress and actually director, writer, producer, musical scorer, all the things. Tell (laughs) me about how you knew this was the moment, or is this something you did a while ago when the movie just sort of became, surfaced? You know, I had been, um, I had been working on a script for a series that was kind of based on my life being a recovering addict and a female in the cutthroat in music industry. Uh, and when I was sitting around in quarantine thinking about, you know, what really makes me happy, I realized that I loved being on set. I loved making music videos and I wanted to do more acting. And so I was just going to do a scene for my acting reel and, Originally, my acting coach had given me a couple of scenes from that someone else had written. And I was just like, I'm just not connecting with this. Like, I feel like I can't really show my chops. And so I was like, I'm just going to write a scene. I'm just going to do, you know, I have this idea for a show. I'm just going to write a little scene from it and see how it goes. And then once I started writing it, I was like, oh, this is a short film. 
this is like a whole thing. This is more than just a scene. And, um, and then I also, because it was quarantine, I was like, you know, I don't know how I'm going to cast people. Like I might as well just play both roles, (laughs) you know? And, you know, on a deeper level, when I was writing the script and thinking about the different characters' motivations and thinking about Lola, the friend who I had called um, her motivations and why she would behave that way, I suddenly realized that I had been in both roles. I had been the person slut-shaming my friend. I had been the person writing someone off and being like, well, yeah, you're wasted every night. Like, what do you expect, you know? And I mean, I wasn't quite as cold as that or as cold (laughs) or cruel as Lola was, Um, but it was important for me to hold myself accountable for, you know, being on the other end of that and also to learn to forgive Lola, you know, and it was really cathartic. I wasn't expecting to have any big epiphanies in making the short film. I just was bored in quarantine and wanted to see what would happen. And then it ended up being like a very healing experience for me. Well, it it's really impactful and it's really good. I'm always astonished when I see short films like yours, I think, wow, there are so many films that were sitting there for two hours that take so long to get to to the place that, you know. I mean, I also think about how most of the stuff you write, like what is a song like three minutes long or three and a half, mm-hmm. you know, a, a pop song. Um And in a way, that's what you do with your songs, too. Like Mm -hmm. in, you know, you could write an entire aria and an opera about the Mm -hmm. thing or in three and a half minutes, you have managed in your songwriting as well to capture an entire experience around love and loss and fear and hope and Mm -hmm. all the things. And it's I mean, I think we love those songs because they are able in a very short amount of time to release all the feelings inside Mm. of us. Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, like, uh, when I was, you know, because I don't have a lot of experience with screenwriting. I've done a little Mm -hmm. bit, but um, I was studying the hero's journey and what that's all about. And, you know, the hero's journey is kind of the story arc that every good story goes through. And you find it in everything from the Bible to, you know, Goodfellas or whatever. It's like, it's just, it's ingrained in our bodies. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So it's like... uh, and I feel like I, I do kind of, I try to do anyway, a little mini hero's journey in every song that I do. And so when I was studying that for screenwriting, I was like, oh yeah, I know how to do this. I already know how to do this. Right. So, um, so it was really right. interesting, like seeing, seeing the, the similarities between screenwriting and songwriting and also yeah. like, don't bore us, get to the chorus is something we say <laughs> in songwriting where it's like, you know, let's just get, let's get to the meat of it. You know, you have some tension and then it's like, okay, here we are. Here's why we're here. Here's our thesis, you know? So during quarantine, I mean, I would think over Zoom, you could continue to collaborate um, mm-hmm. in in the world of songwriting. Is that something that you were able to keep doing? Yeah. And actually, I really like it. <laughs> I know everybody was sick of Zoom, uh, but I really like staying in my pajamas all day. And I feel like also things get done quicker because you're not just like hanging out, you know? Like, it's fun to be social. And when you get in in sessions, it's easy to get kind of distracted and sidetracked. But when you're on Zoom, it's like everyone wants to get off the Zoom. So it's like, all right, we're here. Let's get it done. Let's write a song. Yeah, I got a lot done. Definitely. And um, are there any songs coming out that you've written that we don't know yet that aren't bops that we're, you know, running Um, around within our head that you can talk about? (laughs) Um, I have... I've been sitting on 
a whole lot of music for years, honestly. And I was right before the quarantine, I was about to put out an album um, that I'm very proud of that I feel like it's some of my best work. And then quarantine hit and I was like, ah, now's not the time. Um, so I'm gearing up to put that out next year and try to figure out uh, how, how to go about that. Because, you know, being an independent artist is is a full-time job. And I think that, you know, nowadays with things like TikTok and social media and stuff, there's a lot that the artists can do to really take back the power without needing a label. Um, but I don't know. I'm just, I have a bunch of music that I'm really excited to put out and you'll hear it next year, I promise. Well, you have a bunch of people who are really excited to listen. Um, before I let you go, um, is there a little known fact about you that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, I was like, I don't know how interesting my little known facts are, but uh, I've never had a cavity. <laughs> I've never had a cavity. I've never broken a bone. And I've never had anything pierced, including my ears. Okay, I want to go so. back to the cavity thing for one <laughs> second. Um, is that, do you feel like that's just incredible genetic? like good fortune or are you like really doing something special that we should all know about? I really don't have amazing dental hygiene. (laughs) I, and I'm, and so I'm like, okay, well that's been working for me where I'm like, all right, once a day, maybe every other day I'll skip, you know, I'll fall asleep in my makeup and forget to brush my teeth. But I I don't know. It's working for me. So I'm just like, cool. I'm not going to like ramp up my brushing because everything is working out. Never had cavities. So. All right. Well, I am knocking on wood right now because <laughs> I want all of those unbroken things to remain unbroken. <laughs> I know. Um, thank you for the beautiful art that you make. You're so prolific and what a joy to have you on the podcast today. Thank and you. I thank you so you, much for having of me. Of course. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. A-OK. One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. The episode was edited by Nicholas Klar. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa.